Thank you that as we can hear the wind uh, whistling outside these windows, we thank you that you uh, provided uh, new windows for the sanctuary this past fall uh, so that we don't need to feel, feel the wind. We can hear it, but we don't need to feel it, and that is your goodness and grace and provision over us. We thank you for your word, that it is always timeless and true. It doesn't matter what time period we live in, what culture, society we live in, it will always remain true. We thank you that one of your attributes, your immutability, that you never change, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, is something that we sometimes take for granted, but it is such a powerful foundation and rock that we can anchor our souls into. We thank you for revealing who you are and your truth and your word, for opening our spiritual eyes to see it through the death and resurrection of Jesus and our repentance of our sin. I pray that you bless our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's International Women's Month, uh, this month of March, uh, and I wanted to start out this morning by talking about some of the bravest and most effective women spies in different wars, as recorded by Military.com. Virginia Hall was one of the most successful American spies during World War II. Recruited by a British spy master, she first posed as an American journalist and passed along vital information on the Nazi movements encoded in news reports and encoded messages. She also helped organize uh, covert safe houses in occupied France, helped free allied prisoners of war, and organized networks of other spies. In 1944, she signed up with the U.S. Office of Strategic Service, initiated multiple acts of sabotage against the Nazi military. In fact, Hall is credited with freeing more Allied prisoners, sabotaging more Axis equipment, vehicles and weapons, and leaking more Axis military movement information than any other agent during the war. Hall is the only civilian ever to be awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. And she did it all on a wooden leg she nicknamed Cuthbert. (laughs) We mostly know Harriet Tubman for her work on the Underground Railroad, all the enslaved people she helped lead to freedom, and never being caught. But what a lot of us may not know is that Tubman served as an incredibly effective spy for the Union Army in the American Civil War. Tubman used her experience and knowledge through the Underground Railroad to arrange secret meetings and kept complicated details of the goings-on of the Confederate military and transportation of goods. She built her own spy ring collecting indispensable amounts of information on Confederate supplies, movements, and weapons. In fact, Tubman was the first and only woman during the Civil War to plan and oversee a military operation with the detailed info she possessed by successfully organizing the transport of Union boats through a territory the Confederates had set up mines in. 
Lastly, we wouldn't even know the name Benedict Arnold nor his treason during the American Revolutionary War if it weren't for a spy still only known today as Agent 355. That we don't know what her name is. 355 was the code word for woman, and her identity was so protected for her safety that we still don't know who she was to this day. Most likely she was a shopkeeper or a merchant who struck up conversations with British soldiers who didn't know when to keep their mouths shut. She would pass the information she learned directly to George Washington, and she was the major reason why he learned of Benedict Arnold's treason in his own ranks. Each of these women's missions was highly secretive, but incredibly effective, and greatly aided the sides they served in these various wars. Jesus' mission to the entire world wasn't secretive, especially at this point in his ministry, only a few months out from his crucifixion and resurrection, but it changed both the entire history of the world and the entire spiritual condition of fallen humanity. And in our passage today, Jesus point-blank tells the Jewish crowd, wanting to stone him to death right then and there, what that mission is. How does Jesus' universal mission still impact us in indescribably powerful ways? We ended last week with that, with that when Jesus said that he, was the one, that he was one with the Father, namely in their purpose and plan for salvation of souls and protection and preservation of those souls, his Jewish listeners saw it as enough of a claim to deity to stone Jesus right then and there for blasphemy. And that's where we're picking back up this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 31. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be a, a, a Bible located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to John chapter 10 or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. We're going to pick back up in verse 31. And we read, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. At this point, the Jewish governing council, known as the Sanhedrin, had been stripped of their authority by the occupying Romans to sentence people to death, capital punishment. But in the Pharisees' mind, if the crowd was so incensed enough to stone someone in an impromptu execution, they couldn't be held responsible for it. If it, if it had already happened, it, it had already happened multiple times before, before the Roman soldiers could step in to, to stop it. But before anyone could throw a stone, Jesus replies with this, verse 32. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Here, Jesus reiterates once again that anything and everything he's done or said has come from and with God the Father's authority. So for which act, which message commissioned by the God they claim to worship were they stoning him for, is what he's asking them. Jesus was calling them out for acting out of their humanity, their spiritual blindness, and completely outside of God the Father's authority. They heatedly respond with verse 33. The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The crowd shouts back, It's not because of anything you did before, 
it's for blasphemy that you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. As noted in several places, the dripping irony of this is that the crowd wants to kill Jesus for being a man who they claimed was making himself to be God, when in reality, what had actually happened was that God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, in his humility to the Father and his love for us, made himself a man. If they had truly understood what the reality was, they would have put the stones down and bowed themselves down at his feet. That's the problem with a lot of people still today. They only see Jesus as a mere man who made himself out to be God, was crucified for it, and that's about as far as it goes. That's only as far as their finite human minds can go. And in place of him, they make themselves the authority on truth, the authority on morality, and in those ways, God. They come up with their own standard for what earns or gains entrance into heaven and what doesn't, or the right that's only reserved for God. That's the wildly ironic part. They reject Jesus as God and put themselves in his place with the standard of truth and morality they come up for themselves. I don't know about you, but I do not want to trust my eternal fate up to myself, my standard of truth, and my system of, mor of morality. I know there is also so much more well beyond my realm of understanding. Thank God we don't have to, and we can trust it to the one with infinite wisdom, intelligence, and power. But sadly, many people remain blind to their own pride and want to base it completely on themselves. If you're that way, you have to see the futility and limitedness and foolishness and nonsensicalness and unreasonableness of all of that. The reality is indescribably more breathtaking. Eternal God, who has always existed and will always exist, who exists in three distinct persons in perfect union, who created the entire universe and everything we have yet to even discover or attempt to understand, who possesses infinite power, wisdom, and intelligence, knowing we as weak, finite, and wishy-washy humans would turn our backs on him and set ourselves up in his place, included in his perfect plan an opportunity to still save us from our sin, to still save us from ourselves and the fate of what sin deservingly earns, which is hell. All-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God in his overwhelming love chose to add humanity to his deity to die and raise again for the creation who couldn't have cared less and who wanted and still continues to want to reject him and set themselves up in his place. That is the unexplainable, the amazing that we sung, sang about a few minutes ago, grace of God. We never and still don't deserve any of it. All we can do 
is surrender to it in repentance of our sin. If you haven't still, stop thinking you somehow know better than Almighty God. Because that's just plain nonsense. Finally surrender to him. Finally surrender to his plan. We can all see that the days are hurtling towards the rapture and subsequent tribulation and end times events. You don't have any time left to mess around. And furthermore, you've no clue how much time you have left on this earth, after which it's too late. That flows seamlessly into Jesus' response and his worldwide mission, verses 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now what does Jesus mean? I, you probably read that and your eyes just started to get real big. What in the world does Jesus mean by all of this? As pointed out by one biblical scholar, Jesus is referencing Psalm 82, which brought up that Moses, the judges that he set up over the different numbered designations of groups in Israel, as well as the subsequent generations after that of judges, elders, and religious leaders, are all referenced by the Hebrew word Elohim in Psalm 82, which is another name for God. What in the world does that mean? Well, according to biblical scholars, in all these cases, these leaders had been given the authority of God, by God, to judge these cases in his name. They were given God's word to guide them in their authority. This was to remind them to judge impartially with the wisdom he gave, and that ultimately they would be held accountable to him for their decisions. Jesus extended that to the Pharisees, priests, scribes, and religious leaders of his day. From Moses onward, every leader in religious authority was supposed to be an extension of God's authority in leading his people. And that's what both Psalm 82 and what Jesus' reference is getting at here. So as Jesus says here, if you as the religious people already recognized the religious leaders that God gave his authority to, along with his word to command as Elohim, or extensions of God's authority over his people, what's the gigantic difference you're making between them and me, so much so that you want to kill me because of it? Jesus is once again forcing the people to see the nonsensical and illogical way they were thinking about God, his word, and him. Furthermore, Jesus was a completely different representative of God the Father's authority. He wasn't a fallen human being, at best trying to do their best, and at worst exploiting that authority. Jesus was sanctified and sent not by human wisdom, but directly from the very presence of God the Father. When Jesus says he was sanctified by the Father, he doesn't mean it in the same way that everything and everyone else needs to be sanctified. When you see that word in Scripture, sanctified, it means to be set apart and consecrated as holy. 
The altars and the equipment in the tabernacle needed to be sanctified before they could be used in worship. The priests and high priests had to be sanctified before and after different sacrifices. Today, we as believers are all sanctified by the blood of Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit. But Jesus didn't need to be cleansed as he was sinless. At the same time, though, Jesus was sanctified by the Father in that he was set apart as holy because he was the only holy one sent into the earth. As such, not only was Jesus holy and set apart as the only God-man to ever walk the earth, but he was directly sent by God the Father and given his direct authority over areas that no mere human could ever imagine having authority over, such as judging souls according to the Father's will, laying down his life in his timing and for his purposes, and taking that same life back up again. And yet mere humans were trying to kill him because they thought in their finiteness and futility that he, of all beings, was being blasphemous. Do you see the almost humorous level of absurdity and therefore irony here that Jesus is point blank forcing these people to see? What's next is a cut and dry ultimatum Challenge verses 37 through 38. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. He says, Listen, if you can point to any of the miracles I've performed and can give any proof that they could have happened any other way than through the authority and power of Almighty God, then don't believe anything I've said. That's the ultimatum challenge here. But think about the miracles Jesus has performed. Not one was anything that could have possibly been replicated by any other mere human. Jesus went big and didn't go home. He turned what had clearly been water into clearly what was wine, and no one could explain it. He had healed people from every possible physical disability, illness, or pain, a lot of them that they suffered from birth with, not being able to walk, blindness, not being able to hear or speak, an incurable bleeding disorder. He had brought people back from the brink of death and even from death. He had driven out demons that had possessed people for decades. He caused a raging storm to instantly stop by shouting at it to knock it off. He fed upwards of 20,000 people with just a few fish and loaves of bread. And here Jesus dares the people to claim any one of them could have happened apart from the direct power of Almighty God. If they could not, then he called them to start seeking him. Even if they couldn't get past some of the things he's claimed about himself so far. 
As they started contemplating Jesus' miracles, and they came to the knowledge and understanding that they could have only come as a result of the direct authority and power of God, then they might start to make the connection that everything else Jesus said came as a result of the direct authority and power of God and put their faith in that too. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 38. Nothing changed, though. Verse 39. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. They were still spiritually blinded to the truth Jesus was saying. Once again. And once again, they tried grabbing him to either arrest him or kill him right then and there. And once again, it wasn't God's timing for it yet. So they were unsuccessful and Jesus escaped. From there, Jesus connected himself to the one John the Baptist had been preaching about in the wilderness and baptizing people, verses 40 through 42. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Now, while this is a locale marker, this is also hugely symbolic. As noted by one biblical scholar, the first half of chapter 11, which we're going to talk about next week, or Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, is Jesus' last death-to-life miracle before the events surrounding his last Passover or the Last Supper. That's the last and biggest foreshadowing of what was to come following that death-to-life miracle and the transition to the event surrounding his crucifixion and resurrection. With the Apostle John transitioning to that focus of Jesus' ministry, Jesus returning to the place where John the Baptist ministered is only fitting. Where did the Apostle John start this gospel? After the prologue of chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. With the ministry of John the Baptist as the last mere human Old Testament prophet, preparing and transitioning to the fulfillment of every position God had installed over his people in Jesus. The one whom John the Baptist was the transition to would not only fulfill the position of Old Testament prophet or mouthpiece of God, but also every single sacrifice in the law, most importantly for atonement for sin, represented by the Old Testament priesthood, and fulfill the position of king, not only over Israel, but over the entire world and for all of eternity. So in verses 40 through 42, Jesus returned one last time to the place where it all began. And John the Baptist declared these words toward Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he in behalf of whom I said, After me is coming a man who has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. Existed way before John the Baptist. And I did not recognize him, but so that he would be revealed to Israel, I came baptizing in water. 
He who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. That's where it all began. While at this location, many people made the connection between what John the Baptist had preached and its fulfillment in Jesus. Once John the Baptist had been put in prison and his earthly ministry came to a close, thus fully transitioning the focus of the kingdom of God completely onto Jesus, we read the purpose of Jesus' mission. Now after John was taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. This is on par with John 3.16 right here. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is the gospel message in a nutshell right there. Repent and believe in the gospel. The message of Jesus' mission has never changed since he declared those words. The kingdom of God is here. And at the, in the end times events in connection with the literal kingdom of Jesus on earth, we're getting closer and closer to that. We're running out of time to repent of our sins and believe in the gospel or the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf to save us. Doesn't take a whole lot. Look all around you and see the prophecies getting ready for the tribulational period of God's unprecedented wrath being poured out on the earth and the rise of the Antichrist being fulfilled with each passing day. Every headline in the news fulfills that with each passing day. You want proof of that? Look at how brazen Satan has become these days in making himself less and less part of the unseen realm and more and more of the seen realm. Why is he doing that? Because he knows his days are short. So he's trying to destroy humanity itself in as many ways as he can. He's trying to take as many souls as he can with him to the lake of fire and even so shamelessly as to deceive, manipulate, exploit, and destroy as many children as he can. Children are some of the nearest and dearest to God's heart. Elder Hillegas talked about that last week. And Satan knows that Jesus said that without the faith of a child, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven. So he wants to corrupt and obliterate what the faith of a child even means. Again, the proof of Satan's current brazenness clearly indicates where we are in the timeline of this world. We've run out of time. We've run out of time to tiptoe, to be quiet, and to not stand up for the message of Jesus' mission. We've run out of time. We must boldly step up to the face of evil, declare, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Boldly stand up for the truth of God's word and its authority and its authority alone on any moral issue and boldly declare what Jesus had declared 2,000 years ago. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
The message of Jesus' mission completely turned the world upside down. And it continues to turn the world upside down. Why do you think the world rails and rants and fights against it with every waking breath? The world, as the Apostle John writes elsewhere, wars against God's truth because it's scared of it. Why? Because the message of Jesus' mission annihilates all other messages. Think about it. When you repent of your sins, make Jesus the Savior from those sins, and take him as the king over the rest of your life, the only one you're beholden to is God himself. And God has already given us everything we need to serve him out of love well. He's opened our spiritual eyes to place our faith in Jesus in the first place. He's given us his word with all the commands and teaching we need to live out this earthly life. And he's given us his Holy Spirit to enable and empower us to understand his word and live it out. We're not called to, nor are we supposed to, make who we are in Christ fit with anyone else's agenda, narrative, focus, or purpose. We're not called to, nor are we supposed to, make God's word less offensive, more palatable, or more diluted in connection with anyone else's morals or their truth. We're not called to, nor are we supposed to, make the gospel or anything else in God's word agree with any other message. We have Jesus, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we have God's word, and that's it. That's all we need. The people, in wanting to stone Jesus, had this idea of how Jesus was supposed to be. And since he wasn't fitting that idea, that agenda, or that narrative, they wanted to give him the ultimate cancel. Just off him and be done with him. But Jesus said in our passage today, no. I know what my, my message is, and I know what my mission is. I know I've told it to you numerous times. Your blindness to it doesn't change any of it. You can either take it or leave it. You can either believe it, starting with faith in my miracles, or you can reject all of it. But either way, that doesn't change the fact that God the Father is the one who set me apart for his mission, and he's the one who directly sent me into this world. Jesus' message and mission embodied by the entire word of God, likewise, is the one and only lens we have by which we view all other messages, missions, agendas, focuses, and narratives. The very gospel of Jesus Christ at its basic core is offensive because it calls people out on their sin and that they're not good enough to automatically get into heaven. So if the basic core of the gospel of Jesus Christ is based on being offensive to anyone whose spiritual eyes haven't been opened by God to receive it, why are we worried about offending anyone by sticking to what God's word plainly says about any given topic? As we looked at again last week, we need to do that with the love of Jesus. But don't let the fear of offending someone keep you from sharing Jesus' message and mission. Jesus certainly wasn't worried about offending the crowd, holding up stones in his face and about to pummel it with them. Ultimately, no other message, mission, agenda, focus, or narrative in and of this world matters at all. 
Because at the heart of all of it is a rebellion against and an offense towards what is at the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is repentance. The ultimate answer to a racist heart is repentance of it. Instead of celebrating sexual lifestyles, orientations, and genders outside of God's blueprint established at the time of creation of humanity, they should be repented of. Instead of celebrating abortions with parties and seeking satanic abortion rituals and promoting it as anything other than the murder of a human being that only God has the authority to say when that life ends and needs to be repented of and to be sought to protect the most defenseless and vulnerable human beings in society. Is God the one sovereign over the world and in control of its climate? And yes, already has a plan for the way the world will end. And yes, already revealed what that is in his word. In his word, Or are we as humanity in control of it and can save the world by any practice, law, or program? Is any one human going to solve any problems no matter how much he or she shouts about it? Should we ob- obsess over getting sick with any kind of illness or virus and let it take precedence over what Jesus has called us to do? Should we focus on, obsess over, and overemphasize any constitutional rights we have as American citizens? Or should we entrust ourselves to God's sovereignty and plan and live in the peace that comes with that? Should we live in constant fear that the stock market will crash again or the economy will collapse or that we'll be attacked or go to war with another nation or that a nuclear bomb will be dropped on us or that society as we know it will disappear in a cloud of dust and be primarily focused on being prepared for it? Ultimately, no other message, mission, agenda, focus, or narrative in and of this world matters. Only Jesus' message of his gospel and his word and his mission of taking that word to the ends of the earth matter. Only God's sovereignty and complete control over this world matters. Only Jesus' message that we talked about last week, that no one and nothing can snatch us out of his hand, matters. Only getting to know God more and more through prayer, reading his word and actually following his word matters. Only being transformed more and more each day by the Holy Spirit, being sanctified more and more each day by him, and filtering everything through the lens of Jesus' message and mission matters. Jesus' message and mission cuts through all the loudness, belligerence, and screaming of what the world wants to promote. It cuts through all of that. We have the truth. God has revealed that by opening our eyes and calling us to repentance. Jesus has already died to pay the payment for our sin on our behalf. Jesus is already raised back to life to defeat death and give us life in every way, both in this life and for all of eternity. We are but passing through this earth. We are but passing through this earth to carry out Jesus' mission. And this world will be destroyed someday to be replaced with a new heavens, a new earth. 
So let's live what's left of these lives in boldness, without any fear, not being swayed by someone else's message, agenda, narrative, or mission. Leading and raising our families in the unabashed truth of God and his word. Sharing Jesus' gospel message in love. Caring for those in need with his service. Seeking to be sanctified and cleansed in every area of our lives through the Holy Spirit. And knowing with 100% peace-filled assurance that Jesus is coming back for us and our eternity is already sealed. As Jesus already said to the people challenging him. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am and everything that I am entails as God, you will die in your sins. And they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to say and to judge regarding you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I say to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we know what Jesus' message and mission to this world is. We know what his message is and the mission that he's given to us is to go out into the world preaching, teaching, discipling, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and reminding everyone that he is with us always, even to the end of this age. Lord, let us live that out in boldness. Let us share the gospel message of love and your standards and your word in that love. That we would not be swayed by fear or being offensive because what is at the core of your gospel message is already offensive. But let us stick to your truth. Going in the boldness and power of your Holy Spirit. Knowing that these days are short, we've run out of time. You're coming back any day now, and by the looks of things, that's very, very soon. Lord, may we be good ambassadors for you in this world, knowing this world is not our home. We are only passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven, so let us live like that in this world. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.